Welcome to Health Media Now with award-winning author and host Denise Messenger for a lifetime of health empowerment. Live by being in the pink, meaning P stands for being persistent, I stands for using your intuition, N stands for networking, and K stands for obtaining knowledge. Our guests entertain and share cutting-edge information. They share with you what may have taken years to achieve through experience in their field. Become inspired and motivated. Reach your full potential with fascinating tips and products. Receive a lifetime of benefits from authors, doctors, practitioners, healthcare providers, and learn about exciting new products. You asked for it, and we deliver. Now, here's your host, Denise Messenger. Hello, everybody. We're so glad that you're here with us today, which is January 20th, 2021. Our very special guest is Martha Tettenborn, and she's going to be talking about her book, Hacking Chemo, Using Ketogenic Diet, Therapeutic Fasting, and a Kick-Ass Attitude (laughs) to Power Through Cancer Treatment. She's been a dietitian for over 30 years, and so she's an expert in um, overall health issues relative to cancer. She was diagnosed with ovarian cancer, and that pretty much set her out on a fact-finding mission to understand how cancer affects our cells, etc. She did a low-carb ketogenic diet, she did fasting and other things. And so we're going to bring her on our show today. And I know there's a lot of listeners out there that are very interested in this subject. I usually do this about once a year. Um, so here we are. Welcome, Martha. Thank you. So happy to be with you today. Is there something else you wanted to add about your background before we set out on the interview? Sure. Um, so I'm a, I live in Canada. I'm a dietitian, registered dietitian, and I went through university as a young woman to do that. Um, I've worked in a variety of different areas over my career. Um, I currently work in gerontology or long-term care, and I look after our um, senior population that are frail and uh, having to live in a long-term care facility. Um, but throughout my career, I've used the uh, common wisdom, the uh, common knowledge that has been what nutrition science has been for the last 50 or 60 years. Um, but I have also discovered or realized, I guess is a better term, that I wasn't always very successful in helping people using the, um, the wisdom of the day. The conventional wisdom is the term that's usually used. Um, and so I started looking outside of that um, that realm into some alternatives, and where I ended up was in the field of low-carb nutrition, uh, low-carb healthy fats, or LCHF as it's called, um, and that has taken me down a whole different path, and it's actually made me a bit of a, an outlier in uh, the registered dietitian um, normal community sort of thing. But uh, it's where I really feel that I'm passionate about um, 
using those interventions of a lower carbohydrate, whole foods, uh, animal-based um, focused diet to really make huge changes in people's health. Um, so I started a private practice a few years ago um, after I did some additional certification as a low-carb health coach and, um, and worked in that as well as continuing in long-term care. And that's how I continued until I ended up getting diagnosed with cancer about two years ago. Uh, that's always a life-changing event. Sure is. <laughs> it, uh, it's, I, I, I compare it to uh, an elephant plunking down in the middle of your living room. <laughs> it just kind of take, takes up all the space and doesn't leave yes, much space indeed. for anything else around it for a while. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So um, I imagine that was, was a shock. So then what did you do? Well, it was totally a shock. I um, have always been really healthy. Like not, I've never been an athlete or anything, but I've always been very healthy and ate, you know, relatively well and uh-huh. um, enjoyed life. I, I was 58 at the time that I discovered I had cancer and I mean, I was just almost smug about my my really good health. Um, so I, um, one day, I I got a text message from a friend, and she asked me how I was doing on working on my plank, which is that exercise where you lay on the floor and then hold yourself sure. horizontal above the floor to strengthen your core. Um, and she. Uh, she had just kind of given me a nudge to say, you know, so are you still doing it? <laughs> and I hadn't been. So I laid down on the floor. That just as soon as I got the text message. And the moment I laid down, I discovered I had a, a hard lump in my abdomen that had never been there before. And huh. uh, that's, kind of, that's kind of where the story starts. I, I literally sat up off my living room floor, called the doctor, um, told my husband what had happened. And that was the beginning um, it took two two months later before I actually had the large ovarian cyst removed from my abdomen, and then they discovered it was cancer. Nobody nobody up to that okay. point had any idea that it was cancer. Huh. Wow. So then what? Yeah. Um, well, it was summer in Ontario, which means vacation for most people. You know, Canadian summers are short and sweet. Um, and so it took a little while for me to get referred to a, um, a obstetrician gynecologist or a gynae surgeon actually. And again, she, I live in a rural area of Ontario. So, um, when I did see her, she said, you know, this is just a large fluid filled cyst and nobody had any concept that there could be cancer. She, she actually said, if I thought this was cancer, I would be sending you somewhere else. Oh my Um, gosh. But we didn't. Yeah, so we made the decision to um, remove it laparoscopically. It was it had to be ruptured in order to remove it. It was um, oh huge. Yeah, when it uh. finally came out, it it drained one and a half liters of fluid. So that's about a quart and a half. Um, so yeah, I, I felt like I was about four months pregnant at the time. <laughs> um, so. Yeah, so but it was the end of September before I had it removed. And uh, so I, I had laparoscopic surgery and came home. I'd taken about a week off work. And and um, six days after my surgery, I got a call um, 
and the the call was the doctor wants to see you um, come tomorrow morning, bring another set of ears. And of course, I knew immediately what that meant um, that it wasn't going to be good news. So, but I I do consider myself extremely fortunate that I was diagnosed at stage one um, because ovarian cancer is often like 75 to 80 percent of women are diagnosed at stage three or stage four and at that point it's a much more complex um operator you know series of uh-huh. problems sure. than what i was dealing with so because the cyst was so huge um there was no getting around the fact that it had to be dealt with right away and because of that i was it was caught while i was still at stage one so i do consider myself very very lucky um, did however, you did you by but, any chance mm-hmm. did you did you by any chance have the uh, pathology sent to a second lab? Um, actually, interesting you should say that because um, the local pathologist diagnosed one kind of um, ovarian cancer um, called endometrioid carcinoma, uh-huh. and so I moved forward on the assumption that that's what it was, and. I was referred to, because it was actually ruptured in my abdomen, it was considered a spill, even though it was stage one. So I was referred to a regional cancer center, which in my case is London, Ontario, which is three hours from here. And I met down there with an oncologist, and he strongly suggested that I have chemotherapy um, to just in case there was any loose cancer cells that had escaped when the cyst was ruptured. But six days after I talked to him, I got a call back from him, and he said that it turns out that unbeknownst to him and unbeknownst to me, my pathology had actually been kind of complex, and they had sent it off to um, a second larger center, and those people had sent it off to a third larger center. So by now we're at, with the specialists in Toronto, which is like the biggest city in Ontario, right? Right. right. And, um, and they decided that, oh, no, it was high-grade serous carcinoma. <laughs> um, oh, my God. So the, yeah, so the diagnosis got changed, which meant that my chemotherapy options got changed at that point as well. Uh-huh. Um, so... Endometrioid carcinoma is a better, the doctor described it as, it's a better escape artist. It's, it's, if there were cancer cells still present in my body after the surgery, they could escape through the lymph system and, and travel throughout my body to other places. Okay. So IV, IV chemotherapy made the most sense in that situation because it covers your whole body. But sure. serous, high-grade serous carcinoma is what he called stickier, which means that it tends to stay within the pelvic and abdominal cavities um, uh-huh. as opposed to escaping to more remote locations. So he offered me the option of what's called interperitoneal chemotherapy, where they actually take one of the chemo drugs and they just drain it into your abdominal and pelvic cavity uh-huh. and let it swish, uh-huh. swish around in there. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yep. So I, uh, I chose to do that way. And so one, one of my drugs went in intravenously and the second drug went in um, interperitoneally. Um, okay. What that, yeah, what that meant, though, was that I had to have my chemo in London. I couldn't do it in my hometown in the uh-huh. satellite um, cancer clinic because they only do 
the peritoneal stuff in London. So every three weeks I had to drive through an Ontario stormy, snowy winter down to London for my chemotherapy treatments. <laughs> How long did that go on for? Uh, I had six treatments three weeks apart, so um, each one was three weeks apart. So it was about five months altogether. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so well, I started what a in journey, the dead of winter. Huh? It was. Really what a was. journey. So out of all of that, you wanted to write a book because you decided that even with your good healthy living prior to your cancer diagnosis there had to be something more that you needed to do yes i am i'm a, i don't know i call myself a health nerd i guess i'm always learning i'm always researching i'm always studying i'm listening to podcasts and i'm watching lectures and i mean that's how i ended up in low carb in the first place but when it became personal with this cancer diagnosis i of course, went back straight back to Dr. Google and, and started looking up all the information I could about cancer. Because traditionally, the current approach to cancer for a dietitian is basically just to help people get through the treatment without losing too much weight or, you know, and being able to um, uh-huh. eat adequately despite the side effects. And so we've always just used what we call a high-energy, high-protein diet and, you know, possibly tube feedings if we had to to help people out. Um, But nothing that was actively um, working in favor of the cancer. We were just trying to keep the person from fading away because of the side effects of either the cancer or the treatments. Um, So... As I went down this rabbit hole of research, I discovered there was an, this entire field of cancer research that I had never heard of, and it had to do with um, cancer metabolism, that, that cancer is a disease with um, a damaged or disordered metabolism compared to healthy cells. So we all think of cancer as being a genetic disease, and, and for the most part, people think it's only a genetic disease, but there's actually this other whole field of cancer um, abnormality that has to do with how cancer cells um, and cancer tumors use energy. Uh-huh. Um, so this, this field has been known about since 1920s, 1930s. Um, in fact, a, a researcher named Otto Warburg in Germany right, um, right. actually, uh-huh. yeah, he won Nobel Prize for, for describing this disordered metabolism of cancer back in 1931. <laughs> but, but it all kind of got lost uh-huh. <laughs> for a couple of different reasons, you know. One of which so in was your that, book... Uh, um, so in your book, Hacking Chemo, take us on the journey. The journey to discovering... Writing it. Can- the- uh-huh. Oh, to uh-huh. writing it. Oh, yeah, sure. Uh-huh. So I discovered this stuff and, and um, decided that I was going to use these some of these nutritional interventions, like a, keeping the, the sugar out of my diet and stuff, doing a, a ketogenic diet based on what I had discovered about cancer metabolism. And 
because it simply wasn't out there in any sort of format that anybody could find, I decided to start a blog. Um, also, when I got diagnosed, what I really wanted was other women's stories. I wanted to hear how other women had gone through ovarian cancer and what it was like, you know, and nitty-gritty details and strategies. And, and from people of my own age and stage of life, too, you know, postmenopausal women generally is what I was kind of looking uh-huh. for. Um, and they were underrepresented, to put it mildly, on the Internet, um, which makes sense because, I mean, the Internet's a younger person's domain in a, in a lot of ways. So, um, so I started a blog. Um, I called it Powerful Beyond Measure. And I started a Facebook page of the same name in order to support the blog and point people at the blog. And, uh-huh. um, and you know, people would read my posts and kind of go, you know, you should think about writing a book. <laughs> and I kind of went, you know, I really have a passion to get this information out to other people who could use it, you know, women in particular who are going through this kind of stuff. Um, and so maybe I can. And Lord knows I had you know, some free time because having given up a lot of the other responsibilities in my life to make room for cancer, um, I didn't have as many <laughs> make room for it. <laughs> oh yeah. That elephant, you know, <laughs> um, I, I gave away a lot of my hobbies and, and, uh, volunteer responsibilities and some of my work responsibilities in order to make room for cancer. Yeah. It was kind of a club you never really wanted to join, right? No, you never choose to join it. Now, now that I'm in it, um, I consider that it was a, a turning point in my life, and I don't regret it. But no, it's not something you ever you ever choose to join for sure. Yeah, I agree. Okay. Yeah. Um, so carry on. Yeah. So um, I I also had a. A kind of a really important um, epiphany from a friend who um, who said to me, you know, it's like when I told her that, about the diagnosis, and she had had breast cancer, so she got it. And she sure. said to me, um, you know, it's almost like everything in your life to this point has brought you to to this point. Like every the the low carb coaching and my life experience and everything has brought you to this point that you can go forward as the, the keto cancer dietitian. Those were the words she used. And I kind of went, oh, keto cancer dietitian. I kind of like that. Yeah. <laughs> it, was a, it was an important moment for me to kind of realize that, you know, maybe I had a role to play that, that the cancer was a gift that was pointing me in a new direction that I could actually find a passion I mean, after 35 years as a dietitian, especially when you don't feel like you've been successful for a lot of those years, sometimes it can be hard to find your passion, right? And sure, sure. Yeah, and it's like, you're right. So I just, I, I started a Word document. Actually, I had a couple of friends who sort of said, you know, start with an outline. And I just literally, you know, did this sort of free association outline thing, put it all together, gave it to my couple of friends who were sort of mentoring me through the start of this process and they went you know that's good you could do you could have a book and uh 
so then I just I started fleshing out the outline and adding things to it and writing chunks and taking some chunks that had already been written in my blog and adding them into the book and um, and so that that was how kind of how I I completed the original manuscript. It was uh, yeah. an interesting process. I yeah, it really is, and you really do have to outline the chapters before you can get get going with it. Yes. But, you know, writing it's the easy part <laughs> because, because you're working from a place of your own knowledge and you're working from uh-huh. a place of your own passion. But right. then once it comes, once you've got the manuscript done, then the hard work starts. And that's, sure. that's what I discovered. And, and I was like way in over my head. I knew nothing about where to go past the point of having a manuscript. So yeah. I got some help after that. <laughs> Yeah, you have to. You absolutely have to. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about this low-carb ketogenic diet. What is it? Um, so a low, a ketogenic diet is sort of is a very popular term right now, um, but there's a lot of difference between social media thinks a keto diet is and what a therapeutic ketogenic diet is. Keto diets have been around since the 1920s. Um, they were used in particular to treat children with um, intractable epilepsy. Of course, back in the 1920s, there weren't a lot of medications. Um, But nowadays, it can still be used to treat um, particularly children with seizures who are not responding to any sort of medication. Um, It is a diet that cuts the carbohydrate content, which is the sugars and starches in the diet, so low that your body... Uh, then switches to burning fatty acids. And we are, um, physiologically, we are a happy machine burning fatty acids. It's not like it's anything unusual or um, disruptive to normal physiological metabolism. We've all come to Uh think that, you know, sugar, sugar is the primary fuel and that's the only thing that we can, like blood sugar, I mean, it's the only thing that we can run on. But that's really incorrect. Um, nature wouldn't have built us with the ability to carry around hundreds of thousands of calories worth of stored energy as fat if we didn't have the ability to burn fat. So we all have that genetically wired into our our blueprints, our maps, to be able to burn fatty acids for fuel. Um, And we also have the ability to burn sugars for fuel. But the way that North Americans and the way that most of us eat nowadays um, is that we have so much carbohydrate in our diet that, that the fat burning never happens. Huh, um, so a ketogen, yeah, a ketogenic diet drops your carbohydrate so low that you then um, start burning fatty acids and your liver starts producing an alternative fuel from fatty acids and um, it's called ketone bodies. And there's three different kinds, three different chemicals that comprise ketone bodies. Um, but they're, they're a fuel that most of the cells in your body, not every cell, but most of the cells in your body can happily use as an alternative to sugar for energy, um, particularly your brain. Your brain's really happy burning ketones, which is why it used to be used um, as a treatment for happy epilepsy. Happy brain, huh? <laughs> Happy brain, yeah, yeah. Um, so the foods that comprise a keto diet could be a variety of things, and that's what makes it different from all other diets. It's not about 
what foods go in. It's uh-huh. about the level. It's about the level of carbohydrates that go in. So you can eat a variety of different things as long. Ketogenic means that ketones are genesis or produced, right? So that's what the uh-huh. it's a diet that promotes the production of ketones. It's not any particular pile of food. Um, why that's important in terms of cancer is that cancer cells are very dependent on burning sugar. And so if you can keep the sugar content low in your bloodstream and in, hence in like your diet, then, uh, uh-huh. then, you, then the, the cancer cells don't get the fuel they want, but the ketones that your body's creating, they're happily keeping the rest of your healthy cells um, supplied with energy. So what, tell our listeners, for instance, what would you have for breakfast? Um, usually I would have, depends whether I'm hungry, I must say, um, but eggs, eggs would be a good breakfast. Um, a low-carb bread alternative sometimes um, might be a bread made of almond flour or flax meal or chia seeds, which are all um, low-carbohydrate grain alternatives. Um, okay. So it might be, might be a keto-type bread. Um, but a lot of days I didn't eat breakfast because I wasn't really hungry for breakfast. Uh-huh. Um, so how about lunch? And, um, lunch would be possibly, um, possibly a salad. I wasn't, I, I like salads, but I mean, it, it was winter. <laughs> I wasn't really big into salads. Um, but it would probably be a leftover meat of some kind, um, maybe some leftover cooked vegetables. It might be a, a soup. Um, it might be cheese and some sort of low-carb cracker um, because, for me, cheese and crackers are comfort food. And so there was lots of times when that's what I felt like more than anything else. Um, it might be a casserole based on... Um, uh, cauliflower as, as a sort of a pasta alternative for a base or zucchini or uh, spaghetti squash, something, some sort of low-carb vegetable, but cooked into a, like a warm casserole. Um, uh-huh. Again, leftovers, leftovers from the night before is a lot of times what I end up eating. Um, How about rice? Yeah. Can, can, can people eat rice? No. Rice, it, not on a ketogenic diet. Rice is no rice, pure huh? carbohydrate. No, pure carbohydrate. So the, the keto diet um, eliminates most grain foods, and rice would be a grain food. So that's wheat and rice and um, all the products made from wheat, like bread and pastas, uh, white potatoes. Uh-huh. You wouldn't include white potatoes. And on a keto diet, you really wouldn't include sweet potatoes either because they are higher in carbohydrate. Um, again, it's it's not so much about which foods you choose; it's about how low carb the diet is, so that you produce ketones. Okay. Yeah. Huh. So how how does one maintain their weight, or if they're going through uh, chemotherapy, times um, um, they lose they lose weight because they don't feel good? Yes. Well. That's one of the, the kind of amazing things about all this. So a low-carb diet um, uses 
and, and keto diets are part of that as well. Use fat calories as the alternative to carbohydrate calories. So in other words, uh, a low-carb diet is sort of by definition a high-fat diet. Um, And that's where your extra calories come from, okay? So it's easy to eat lots of calories on a keto diet um, because you're adding, if if you're making a practice of adding fat, a lot of fat to things. Um, I found that I never lost a pound throughout my entire chemo. Now, I was fast around each chemotherapy treatment, and during the, the time that I was fasting, of course, I was losing weight, but then over the time in between the cancer treatments, like that couple of weeks in between, my weight would return to within a, a pound of where it was before, and then um, then I'd fast again for the next treatment and so on. So I never lost a pound. Um, it's got, I've that's, had other it's, friends that's, who've lost yeah, a bit. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's interesting because... A lot of times people will go on a high-protein diet and they lose weight like crazy. Yes. Yes. And, I mean, you can lose weight on a keto diet and you can lose weight on a high-protein diet. Um, The difference is that when you're burning fatty acids for fuel, which is what you're doing when you're on a ketogenic diet, um, you can get those fatty acids from your diet or you can get them from your body. Right from your, right. your fat stores, and if your goal is weight loss, then you eat a keto diet that is um, adequate in protein and satiating, because protein is very filling and satiating in protein, very low in carbohydrates, and then you don't add in a ton of extra fat, and then the the deficit is made up by your body's fat stores, and you will lose weight. But now, when you say uh, weight on a keto diet too, yeah, because when you say um, no ex, no, no, you don't add any extra fat. What are you referring to as extra fat in a okay, diet? Okay, not not no extra fat, but you, there are people who consider a keto diet to be a license to just you know slather everything in butter or, you know, eat all of the, the fat on the meat and all that kind of stuff. And, and I mean, you uh. can do that. If you're particular, if someone's, say, an active young man, athlete or something who's burning lots of calories, um, it's, it's okay to do that and to maintain their weight. But if you're trying to lose weight, then the fat that you want to burn as your fuel is the alternative to carbs needs to come from your body's own fat stores. So um, with the keto diet, it sounds like you, you can have milk products. Oh, yes. Yep. Um, usually, a keto that's what diet saves you. Milk products. <laughs> that's what saves you. Um, <laughs> I don't know about save you. Um, I, well, I'm, for weight-wise. I, I find that weight, life... Weight-wise? Weight. Um. Not, no, lots of people lose weight, weight on a keto diet that includes milk products. Again, it's okay. about the amount of added fat. I have never gone without milk products for more than a month at a time when I've tried, um, just tried something like uh-huh. a Whole30 diet or something. But I really, I, I love cheese. So I can't imagine going my whole life without cheese. I like that. <laughs> yeah. But you don't um, have any fruits, correct? No fruit at all? Almost no fruit. 
yeah, there's there's room in a keto diet for berries, uh, blueberries, raspberries, strawberries. Um, I in, I live in Canada. Most of the year, it's frozen berries. Um, <laughs> yeah, frozen. <laughs> but there but there isn't room for the high sugar tropical fruits. There isn't room for bananas and mangoes and pineapples and and stuff like that. Um, I'll I'll eat usually a couple of apples every fall because I live in apple country and I love them. Um, but it's, you know, it's like if we lived in the wild, there would be apples in abundance once a year for a period of time. And then we'd have winter sure. and spring and summer and, you know, and, and other things are growing during those times. We've never lived in a time before where you ate high carbohydrate harvest type foods all year round. Right. So that's a good point. Um, so no, I don't eat. Yeah, I don't eat fruit most of the time. Um, I buy a bag of grapes every couple of weeks, and we go through them between my husband and myself. But th- that's and they're like a treat for me. Sure. I should say that I was strict, strict, strict ketogenic diet for the entire time that I was in chemo. I was in ketosis the whole time. I monitored myself with a blood meter and everything. But that's not where I live most of the time. I live a um, moderate, low-carb, whole foods-based sort of lifestyle most of the time with room in it for, for treats once in a while. Um, treats for me don't tend to be sweet things, so that's just me. I don't have much of a sweet tooth. They tend to be salty things. So... Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't want to make it sound like I'm this perfect person who lives total keto all the time because I'm not. Um, but certainly while I was going through cancer treatment, I was extremely focused. And I'm, cancer treatment will do that to you. It'll make you very focused. And so I was on the strict keto diet and doing the fasting um, each time I had a chemo treatment. Okay. That brings clarity to our discussion. Yeah. Uh, did you do some um, healing of the mind and your spirit as well? I didn't probably do anything in terms of active healing of my mind. I'm somebody who lives with a strong faith. And um, that certainly continued during the time of my cancer treatment. I never um, went down that dark rabbit hole of like, why me? Um, you know, this is awful. What did I do to deserve this? Any, none of that sort of stuff. And I'm, I'm a per- perennial optimist. I'm a glass half full kind of person. Always have been. Um, but I did I did ask myself why has the universe or God or whatever, however you understand that universal power of love that, you know, connects us all, why has the universe brought this into my life? And that was kind of how I approached the whole thing. Um, and in that way, you look at it as a bit of a gift. And and you sort of say why why did this come into my life right and 
And one of the things that it came into my life for was to send me off in this new direction of, of writing this book and becoming an advocate for people who are going through cancer treatment and helping people to understand that there's this powerful intervention with, that is nutrition um, that can really have a huge impact on how their body responds to um, cancer treatment, particularly chemotherapy, uh, reducing side effects, you know, making you feel awesome all the way through, making the chemotherapy more effective. There's a, there, there was a lot to, um, to embrace and then share. And that's sure. kind of my paying it forward, putting it, putting it out there into the universe and putting myself out into the universe because that's kind of scary too, <laughs> you know, <laughs> doing things like this, doing things like this today. Ah. <laughs> uh. Not scary, not scary at all. <laughs> um, You're making it easy today. <laughs> I'm glad, I'm glad. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the low-carb flu. Um, you, sure. Yeah, you, you mention it, and I suspect it has to do with the side effects of switching over from one diet to another. Um, it can when you get started. If you're coming from a standard American diet where you're eating a high carbohydrate intake, particularly if you're eating a lot of um, processed type foods like ultra processed uh-huh. foods, and then suddenly sure. you switch away from all that, uh, your body's going to go through a fair adjustment. Okay, first of all, there's a lot of um, chemicals that are suddenly going to not be part of your diet, and so your body's going to um, make an effort to detox or di- you know divest itself of some of those chemicals, but the main thing is the fuel component. So we are all born with the ability to burn both fatty acids and sugar for fuels, and we have a metabolic pathway that handles those um, those chemical breakdown processes that releases the energy from our food. But because of the way North Americans live, where we put something carb-loaded into our mouths pretty well every two to three hours, maybe even more often for some people, we never, ever, ever allow ourselves to be carb-depleted enough to ever burn fatty acids. Okay, so we are, I mean, we're built that if there's carbs there, we'll burn those first. And then when the carb intake is low, we switch to burning fatty acids. That's just physiologically the way it works because carbs are sort of a fast fuel they're the fuel that we use when we have, for example, an, an adrenaline reaction, a fight or flight type uh-huh. reaction, that uh-huh. kind of thing. So the body doesn't keep anything that it's not using. It will mothball or, you know, take apart any sort of um, tissue or, or metabolic pathway or anything that it's not using. That's why muscles waste when you don't use them, right? Why they get yes. smaller. So... If, if we never, ever, ever use our fat-burning abilities because we're always putting carbs down our pie hole, um, then that whole metabolic pathway just gets mothballed and it's not present. Now, if you suddenly cut your carbs way, way, way low and your body has only carb-burning pathways, then for a little while you're going to feel like absolute crap until your body gets the message, and it will because food is the signal, it'll get the message of the fuel that's coming in is fatty acids. We need to upregulate the fatty acid burning pathways. And that takes a few days. And during that time, people get what they call 
what has been termed carb flu or keto flu, um, where you you have a few days of feeling pretty lousy, and it's basically uh-huh. a fuel supply problem. Um, once your body upregulates and rebuilds some of those fat-burning metabolic pathways, then suddenly you have this endless supply of really steady-burning fuel, and you feel like a million bucks. You're, you're suddenly you go from being crappy to being the ever ready bunny. (laughs) I like that. (laughs) I like that. Well, um, is there anything else that you'd like to impart before we uh, conclude our interview today? Um, Obviously we'll talk about where people can purchase your book. Sure. Um, I, I just wanted to say that, that what really made what I did different than anything else was using um, the fasting. Fasting for um, a couple of days around the chemotherapy treatments. That's what really made a difference. Um, and, and it really reduced the side effects that I felt. Um, I, despite having a very standard chemotherapy, I had almost no nausea, like literally almost nothing. I never threw up. Um, I never required additional medication to support my immune system. Um, I did lose all my hair, but of course that's, I'm not that worried about that. Um, I never had any overall muscle and joint type pains and I never had any nerve damage or what's called peripheral neuropathy. All those things I managed to avoid and I credit at least to some degree the um, the chemo fasting protocol that I created and it's in the book um, exactly what I did in terms of the the fasting protocol it's not a water fast it's a supported fast um, also if anybody goes to my website and subscribes you can get a, a download of the fe- the chemo fasting protocol um, it's just a one page document but it gives you the actual day one day two day three day four sort of um, for getting for getting through chemo treatments. Oh, that's great. So what's that's, the, what's your website? It's just my name, Martha Tettenborn, um, dot com. So it's T E T T E N B O R N. The German name, nobody great. can spell it. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's great. Yeah, so the blog is there. There's um, there's links to to the book. Um, uh, it's okay. available Amazon um, on all the platforms internationally. So dot com, dot ca, Australia, Germany, everywhere. Sure. And um, both an ebook and a print-on-demand paper book, paperback. Um, and and as well, Barnes and Noble and independent booksellers can get it. Um, and chapters, chapters Indigo in Canada, which is like our Barnes and Noble. Um, so it's a bit, it's quite widely available, and uh, and all I would ask is that you know hopefully it helps people. That's why I wrote it. But if your readers and listeners um, were to um, read the book, if they could offer a review on whatever platform they bought it on, whether it's Amazon or Barnes and Noble or whatever, um, a review okay. is absolutely the best gift you can give an author. <laughs> Yeah, an honest review. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't even have to, you don't even have to write anything out if you choose not to. Even just the stars or something. But 
reviews are how Amazon decides whether or not to show your book to more people, and that's the best way to get the message out there. All right. Well, thank you so much for visiting with us today and teaching us, because that's what we're all about. Oh, well, thank you for having me. It's wonderful to get to, get to know you and hear your show, and um, I thank you so Absolutely. much for the opportunity to share. Yeah, yeah you've, you've imparted some really great knowledge. That's particularly what cancer people need. The club. Yes. That's what the club needs. Yes, yes. You need to know that you're not powerless when you get a cancer diagnosis, that you have all kinds of power, both mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and nutritionally and physically. Yeah. You have all kinds of power. Don't feel like you're a victim yeah. and don't, don't feel right. powerless. Probably from my own experience, um, I found that from the time of an initial cancer diagnosis, some people can go into d- denial. They don't even know they're in it. And it can last from four to six weeks. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, that's a really important time, you know, to do your research and to, to you know, look into your practitioners and your physicians and et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, I just want listeners to keep that in mind, that that's kind of just what happens. Yes. And the other thing that I learned is that you don't have to make a decision the moment you find out. You don't, you know, I, I hear, I live in, again, in Canada where there's socialized medicine, which means that you, you know, make appointments and you wait for things to happen. Um, but I've, I've heard it and read about people in the States who literally, you know, get a diagnosis in the morning and by, by the afternoon they're in surgery. And they don't give themselves time to process anything or to look at alternatives or even to, you know, um, to come to grips with it. And and it's not that big a rush. Like there's nothing, it's a growth. And so it grows at a fairly steady pace and you don't need to make a decision between like today and tomorrow or even next week. You have the time to, to think and to investigate and to look at your options, as you say, to process it. Because, you know, yeah, there will be denial and there will be anger and there might be fear and all kinds of other stuff. Um, well, usually fear is the first, the first thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is for a lot of people. Or guilt. It tends to take, take over, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. thank you so much, Martha. You take care. You too, Denise. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. That wraps up our show for today. Please join us again next Wednesday. We'll have another great guest for you, as always. Until then, please be well. Bye. We celebrate our listeners worldwide and invite you to contact Denise at www.healthmedianow.com with any questions you may have. And follow her on Twitter at Health Media Now and Facebook at Health Media Now. For those interested in an advertising campaign on her show, contact Lisa at KnowledgeWorksPub.com. Be sure to visit GotCancerNowWhat.com for information on Denise Messenger's award-winning book, Got Cancer? Now What? <laughs>